When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome to the Ruler podcast. I'm Jack Thurston, and I've been presenting the podcast since way back in the mists of time. Well, issue 24 of the magazine. It's now issue 57, and as a wise man by the name of George Harrison once sang, all things must pass. The fact is, it's become increasingly difficult for me to present the podcast in person, which is the way it should be done. And so I'm delighted that Ian Parkinson has stepped up to the mic, and he'll be taking the podcast into a brave new future. Meatier, beatier, bigger, and more bouncy. At least that's what he's told me. Ian is a vastly experienced radio reporter and producer, and no mean bike racer either, so you're in very good hands. You can still catch me on the Bike Show podcast, find it on iTunes. But for now, from me on the Ruler podcast, it's happy trails. Thanks for listening, and goodbye. Hello, and welcome to the Ruler podcast for issue 57. I'm Ian Parkinson, and we're back once again in the historic and, and slightly windy again surroundings of Hernhill Velodrome in South London, uh, where you may be able to hear a new generation of young people being introduced to the delights of track racing in the background. I'm joined once again by the ruler editor, Ian Cleverly, and, I'm delighted to say, by Ned Bolting. Welcome, both of you. Thank you very Again. much. Quite a bit to talk about in issue 57. Hopefully we'll be uh, talking about Sean Kelly. Uh, we'll be taking a look at a, frankly, rather eccentric attempt to redesign the Musette. Uh, we've got an example of uh, one redesign with us, and we may even try it out later on, so Ooh. do stay listening for that. And we'll be talking about our favourite photos from issue 57, and then, of course, there's the ruler competition. First of all, though, Ned, did you have a good Tour de France? I did, yeah. It's, uh, the dust has settled. It always takes me a while when I get back from the race just to uh, sift it through and try and figure out what kind of a race it was. Um, and on balance, and uh, in opposition to, la- or as a point of difference to last year's race, I thought this was a cracker. Because there was a point, wasn't there? So I think it was, was it stage 10 where everyone thought, oh, that's it then, Chris Froome's Chris Froome's won, yeah. um, and it wasn't going to be much more of a race. But actually, it turned into quite a reasonable race in the end. Yeah, really, he only took time out of his rivals on that one. Uh, it happened to be the first uh, mountain stage in the Pyrenees, and after that, it was a, uh, a question of you know, keeping everyone in checkmate and then slowly weakening his grip. So it had all that kind of um, upward trajectory from his arrivals, or at least from Quintana, towards the end. So it held its drama right to the last. And actually, in the 13 tours I've done, I don't recall seeing a penultimate stage, so, the, you know, stage 20, if you like, whether that's a mountaintop finish or a, or a time trial, that held the race so much in the balance. I mean, we've had, I think when Cadell Evans won, he had to overcome Andy Schleck in the final time trial, but everyone knew that was going to happen. Whereas there was genuinely kind of 20 minutes or half an hour of racing on Alpe d'Huez between Quintana and Froome, during which you did not know. 
you really didn't know whether the Tour de France was going to be thrown away at the last. And they brought time bonuses back, didn't they? Did mm. that, that seemed to make a bit of a difference to the race. Yeah, I mean, whether they'll hang around, I don't know. I mean, I was delighted to see the back of them when they were first abolished. But actually, you know, it's just freshened things up again and it, it produced a slightly different race. Um, I suspect you might lose them again next year because it's the Proudhon way, isn't it? Just to keep the keep everything kind of, you know, the deck being shuffled all the time. But I think it worked on this edition, yeah, for sure. Ian, did you manage to get out and see any of the stages? No. <laughs> <laughs> Frankly. Did you enjoy it watching at home? Though? I was office bound. Um, I did enjoy watching it at home. I, I thought it was... Um, a great race, and it's interesting that was it after stage ten when everybody went, "Oh, the race is over." And so people had this kind of these rose-tinted spectacles. Were like, yeah, oh, it was so fantastic back in the day. It was always close. No, it wasn't. Mm. It was ever thus. Mm, mm. And you just you 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 get out of the race. You just have to sort of look at other aspects of it. You know, look at the, some of the fantastic stage wins, and and it was interesting. Um, talking to one of the riders last week interviewing one of the riders last week and him saying how on the tour there, there's no such thing as an easy day anymore whereas back in when he started there were you could guarantee there'll be seven stages where you could just sit in all day and then sprint at the end and recover and that doesn't happen anymore and that that is happening in all three grand tours they're all ramping up the the pressure aren't they and and make it turn them into a different sort of animal and it's great for us tv spectators because there is never a dull day is there no i mean you're absolutely right about um twas ever thus i mean it certainly seems to have been the way ever since i've been following grand tours but you you yearn for in the first week before you get to those mountain stages you yearn for the decisiveness of the mountain stage and what that's going to deliver to the race and then as soon as it's happened and someone's won you kind of go Stop oh, moaning about oh, it. oh <laughs> what was that all about now the race is over but actually um so it's always been that dichotomy hasn't it between yeah. you know forcing a decisive moment and then the aftermath of a decisive moment is it kind of that's but that i thought he balanced that prudhomme has a, a knack and it's partly luck as well quintana was on the top of up and you do you know day after day after day watching these guys and their body language behind the podium because both Froome and quintana were on the podium every day because quintana was in the white jersey of course but you, you, he was genuinely distraught before he pulled himself together and started to do his interviews because you could read his mind he knew that Prudhomme had designed a Tour de France with him in mind, with mm. no long individual time trial. That was his tour. I mean, he, he may well come back and win next year's and the year after that, who knows. But that was the first golden opportunity for Quintana, and he should have attacked Froome earlier with more vigour, and he should have won that tour. Well, I was going to ask if, you know, Froome is, lots of things can happen, but if Froome is back next year and, and fit and, you know, not injured, can anyone beat him? Can you see anyone beating him? Yeah, Naira Quintana can beat him. But he didn't do it this year. No, he didn't. But, um, you know, I, sitting down and doing the maths because I'm about to commentate on the Vuelta when it's kind of a rematch between all the top four in the, in the Tour de France minus Contador, but plus Fabio Aru and Mikel Lando as well, which adds to the intrigue. But anyway, I was looking at the direct comparison between Quintana and Froome. And if you take out the 1 minute 20 that Quintana lost when he was held up on stage two, and then the what is it, four seconds he lost to Froome on the time trial and little bits and pieces here and there basically that was you know Quintana did him in the mountains did him so um I think Quintana can can win the tour especially if the next time an individual time trial comes around it's a mountain time trial as there was in 2013 you know there's 
every 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 chance that can happen. One of the things we were talking about on the podcast last time was this, the new generation of French riders. And actually, when we uh, were talking last time, they weren't doing particularly well at that stage of the tour. Towards the end, there, there were sort of signs that they were going to do all right, and then they weren't. It was a bit of a unconvincing display, really, this year, wasn't it, from the young French? Um, it's probably where they're at at the moment. They are young, I mean, young emphasis on young. And um, Pino and Bardet did all that they could, I think. Pino was probably of the two the more disappointing. But the, the one that I think emerged with you know, great, the greatest credit out of the young French GC hopefuls was actually Warren Barguil. And uh, the, more, the longer the race went on, the more you thought, actually, possibly of the three, he's the one. But let's judge them all in two or three years' time and not read too much into their exceptional performances of 2014 because you have to relativise that GC field. I mean, with respect to Nibali and everyone else in that race, if, I'm sorry, if Jean-Christophe Perrault at the age of 37 finishes in second place on the Tour, that's not a vintage Tour de France. Ian, the favourite moment for you from the Tour, from the, from the armchair? Bardet's stage win. Mm. It's Bardet's descent and stage win. Mm. So I was, I was saying to the guys in the office that it wasn't it wasn't that many years ago that I I I only ever was able to watch the highlights of a stage in the evening and, and I'd never get to see any descending. Yeah, you know, yeah. It was, it was just, and now it's like yeah, I can sit and watch this whole thing. Oh, I just love it, absolutely love it. He was absolutely storming and just a carbon copy of his Dauphiné. You know, yeah. it's like hey, I'm going to do it again. Yeah, nobody can stop him. Oh, I, yeah. Well, I, I thought I thought Martin's. You know, in the first week, Tony Martin's misfortune in losing out with Cavendish allowed himself to be beaten by Fabian Cancellara in that sprint, thereby denying uh, Tony Martin his, his yellow jersey. And then finally Martin getting the yellow jersey and then crashing out and breaking his bones and, you know, all that. Classic to so, the France also, drama and Also, as I, as I am so incapable of proving on this very very velodrome where, we're, where we, we all ride every Wednesday morning. Um, Martin is able to uh, win a bike race by simply riding his bicycle faster from A to B than anyone else. <laughs> he just strips it down to its barest simplicity, doesn't he? And he, I just that's, that's what cycle sport should be, I suppose. Right? Yes, in a way. Yes. In a way. <laughs> uh, one question I've got to ask you, and I'm sure you've been asked it loads of times, and you're probably fed up with answering it, but uh, uh, watching at home, Matt Rendell, yeah. legend or what? Well, that's not, that's not, you know, yeah, he is. <laughs> <laughs> For me, one of the highlights yeah. was his interview, his sort of doorstep interview, although it was much too suave to be a, a doorstep yeah. on Laurent Jalabert. Yeah. Um, how did he manage to pull that off? Well, I mean, it, you know, a combination of b- balls, really, and, um, and some pretty damn good French. And sometimes his French lets him down, but he absolutely nailed it this time. And also a good bit of preparation, because it was obvious that Jalabert was going to blank him and come back with the, oh, I didn't say that, line. And if he hadn't been prepared, a lesser man than Matt would have gone, oh, oh OK, well, I thought you had. But actually Matt said, well, no, you said this, and then you said this and this at him, to which, you know, at which point Jalabert was pretty much cornered. Um... And, you know, Matt's done this from time to time. He's a, he's a good journalist, and, and uh, it, was a, it was an interesting moment, wasn't it? And you it? don't see it that often now, do you, on the, on, on the tour? You've never seen it that much, that sort of journalism. That you kind don't of see. confrontational style, yeah. And what was very interesting about that, it was, it, well, two things. It put us, I think, for a day or two, uh, as, if you like, the ITV show, in a slightly uncomfortable position, because, um, now, he's perfectly entitled to do this, but Chris Froome, stroke Michelle Froome, who does his tweeting for him I suspect um, you know some, p- tweeted this and kind of thanked ITV for our contribution to the, the Froome defence if you like now that really wasn't what it was all about actually mm. we were trying to present a balanced picture of the debate and, and that interview with Jalabert was part of a balanced analysis of 
of what we thought the Froome situation was about. So we weren't defending Chris Froome. Did it cause any frostiness at the Village de Depart? Was Laurent Jalabert... You know, oh, frosty. It was off the in scale. Your, in your filthy it coffee. It was off the scale. You know, I mean, it was, he, was, he, was, he had the look of a hunted man, actually, which made me slightly uncomfortable because, you know, that, that wasn't the idea either. The idea, actually, was to genuinely was to say, come on, if you, if you want to engage in this debate about Sky and you've got legitimate suspicions, let's hear them. Yeah. Let's hear them. And, and, and that was the opportunity that was genuinely presented to him on a plate and he completely shunned that opportunity and, and then you're, you have to draw your own conclusions about his veracity, don't you? I must confess I, did, I, didn't, I haven't seen the interview but yeah. from the gist of what I saw from Matt was basically he just put it out there and said, well, there you go and then uh, Shalabert managed to sort of hang himself, basically. That's exactly what happened. Yes. What was interesting, after, after Chris Froome kind of retweeted it and, and, and the whole thing gained a bit of traction... Then, it, you know, obviously, most of the peloton on the Tour de France, because we're in France, never watch ITV's output, but all of a sudden they were watching ITV's output. They were all on Twitter, they all sit in their hotel rooms and look at this thing. What was very interesting was a couple of days later, John Dagenkob came through the finishing line. Um, nothing to do with any of this, obviously. Spotted Matt, a man he doesn't know particularly, spun round through 180 degrees, rode back to Matt, tapped him on the shoulder and said, are you Matt Rendell? And Matt went, yes. And he said, I just want to say... On behalf of a whole bunch of us in the peloton, thank you. And there should be more of that, tackling the old guard. Um, now, that doesn't say, you know, Matt was obviously delighted and grinning from ear to ear. But actually, I think that says a lot about John Dagenkolb. And it does say a lot about where we think we're at in terms of the prevailing With culture. With the modern peloton. I, you know, mm-hmm. I don't want to be naive or gloss over anything. But I think there is a, a core, you know, that's moving in the right direction amongst the younger riders. Okay, we'll leave the uh, Tour de France there. We'll talk about the Vuelta in a bit. One rider who uh, never won the Tour de France, of course, he won a few stages of it, and he won pretty much everything else, was Sean Kelly. Um, I've got a real fondness for Kelly, because actually he was in his prime when I first started really getting into bike racing. And he's always had a reputation of being a quiet, reserved, hard man of uh, cycling, but he seems to have transformed himself into quite an accessible character these days. And uh, he's the subject of a fairly big article in Issue 57. Ian, what made you commission the piece about Sean Kelly? We had to, I'm so sure we had Kelly back in one of the really, really early issues years ago, but um, it, it's, he's always an intriguing man. And, and it is funny, that idea you get of him of being this, this taciturn man from Tipperary who hasn't got much to say on anything, but... He used to he used to nod in radio interviews, didn't he? My, 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 my very favourite um, uh, Eurosport David Duffield moment was when uh, on a mountain climb there was a rider from one team up the road, and their teammate launches off the front of the bunch and starts chasing him down. Duffield goes apoplectic goes into this really long lead-in. He, t- he, he must have teed him up for two minutes. And he goes, what? Sean, I've never seen anything like this. What could it possibly be? And he was going on and on and on. And he goes, Sean. Sean goes, well, I don't know. <laughs> you know, that, that, to me, that was Sean Kelly in his early days of Eurosport. You know, that would never happen now. Um, <laughs> Although he does still have that fantastic, endearing habit of adding an extra T in the word certainly so that it comes out certainly, which I think is absolutely <laughs> splendid. I'm going to introduce that into all my broadcasts. But he is a much more accessible character now, isn't he? Oh, he seems to be. Yeah. I think to anybody of a certain age, he's, he's just a legend. And, yeah. and it's frightening when you start looking down at the 
is Palmares. He, he won everything, man. He won anything going. You know, Colin asked him during the interview, do you, do you think you could have won, won the tour? And, and he says, well, yeah, in hindsight, yeah, probably. But, but every year, it was always the Vuelta, because his sponsor wanted to ride the Vuelta. It was always the classics. Uh, you know, if he'd, if he'd gone easier on, on one of them, you know, but he said, but every time I got to the, and then the, not to mention the post-tour crits, I mean, he rode everything, you know, he just never stopped. And that's one of the other big changes, isn't it? The, the, the idea that someone could win all the classics and then win the Grand Tours, it's, it's kind of unthinkable now. Well, I mean, what, what, what this whole conversation puts me in mind of instantly is the last couple of years of being Peter Sagan, right? Mm. So Sagan is the new... Or he's, he's, the, he's, the, he's the inheritor of the Kelly mantle, isn't he? And, uh, or, you know, they've called him the new Mercs, but I'd say he's much more Kelly-esque. Um, mm. and, but there's no place for Peter Sagan. In, I mean, as he repeatedly tells me every time he finishes second. Repeater Sagan. <laughs> yeah. I mean, where do you go if you're Peter Sagan, if you're capable of so much? And back in, you know, back in Sean Kelly's era, you could win stuff and you could go on. You could win, he won the wealth of heaven's sake. How can you do that as well as everything else? Well, um, I, I, Kelly talks about Sagan near the end of this piece because it, it, and talking about well he, he's saying he's well he's a lot like he's a lot like me he yeah. recognizes himself in, in Sargon's style and he said well yeah if I rode like in fact he actually says I, I had finished second an awful lot of times but you know nobody really remembers that but you know he said he was so he's he's going to first boat. an awful lot more than well I guess yeah. yeah but you know he's, he said you know Sargon's yeah. a little bit naive you know you just need a little bit more tactical nous and and he'll be there but yeah. That was my take on Sargon. Wasn't think. Sargon immense on this year's Tour de France? Yeah, but, awesome. I mean, just in, awesome. he just enlivened Apart from every the, uh, the podium celebration with the machine gun thing. You see that cinema? Right, yeah, not, I saw not that. Not one of his right better moments. <laughs> no. <laughs> on, on a day when police, police are firing machine guns on the Champs-Élysées oh, in the morning. I it was all right. I mean, all that nonsense <laughs> they've given on the podium anyway. You know, what are supposed to do with it? Yeah, OK. There are some great pictures in the, um, in the Kelly article, um, and I nearly chose um, a, a couple of them, actually, as my sort of favourite pictures from, from this edition. Um, the, the, there's a lovely picture of him and Robert Miller um, both looking absolutely classic, you know, absolutely in their prime. Uh, Miller, I think, riding an, an MBK, which he uh, used to say was amongst the worst bikes ever made. Uh, and Kelly on it, Kelly on his Vitus. Well, yeah, there's <laughs> loads of lovely pictures of Kelly on that uh, on that sort of classic old um, Vitus 979, the old alloy, um, the old alloy frames, which are floppy as anything, but they yeah. they did look uh, brilliant and didn't seem to do um, Kelly any harm. <laughs> But That's because he got a new one for every race, I think. The pictures in that are great, but I guess um, if we're talking about our um, favourite photos from the um, uh, from from the issue, which we should uh, move on to, uh, for me, um, because I'm such a um, technical obsessive and mechanical ob- obsessive, the uh, photographs in the article about Specialised are, are brilliant for me. I love... I am one of those people who... Um, if I'm on uh, following a, a race, we'll go and stand in the hotel car park and watch the mechanics fiddling with bikes. And I love to see which tools, which sort of Allen key they're using. And some of the, the, the photographs in the specialised article. Are You're lovely. getting us worried here. Yeah, you do that. <laughs> we should, I should be, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. For me, I'm going for one of Marshall Kappel's on page ooh, 100. Um, and it's of, of a bunch of riders coming through the feed zone. Um, with musettes flying left, right, and centre, 
I just I just love the way they're sort of launched in the air, and they, they managed to catch them in in, in mid air, and it sort of makes you realise how how swift the whole operation is. You know, I think they've probably just just collected them about thirty seconds earlier, around the neck, take out what they want, bosh, into the curb, and then on you go. I think someone says in the article that is another thing you never see on TV the the, the feed zone. Yeah. Um, which normally come during a boring bit of the yeah. stage. Uh, and a couple of times I've actually sort of parked up in a feed zone and just stood there and watched it. It's amazing, mm. absolutely terrifying. Mm. It's an amazing spectator sport watching them go through and pick up those mizettes. It's most terrifying for, for, the, for the soigneurs. I mean, I've, I've done it as, as a soigneur and it's petrifying. It's absolutely petrifying. Because the, the, the opportunity to cause absolute carnage is, is And huge. I would imagine that you are never in the right and the rider is never wrong, right? So Pretty if they much. miss their feed, that's, yeah, 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 that's yeah. a one-way street, isn't it? Yeah. And I was doing it in, a, in a, uh, a women's race in the Czech Republic, which was absolutely phenomenally hot. And um, they were all gasping. And so I'm standing there. I'm holding up my bottle for my rider. Another team's rider cut right across in front of her and knocked it out of my hand. What did you do then? She was that. Well, that was it. You know, <laughs> that means my rider's gone without a bottle. I got it. You know. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, a good. Um, I remember when uh, one of the early editions of the reincarnation of the Tour of Britain that I was covering. I think it was the first time Europe Car came across, plus Tommy Verkler and the rest of them to to to, to ride. And on stage one, uh, they completely missed their first feed because they'd never ridden in the UK before and of course on the feed zones the yeah, they all stand on the left hand side of the road so they all moved <laughs> over to the right in the feed just... zone and everyone else got them <laughs> they missed out completely <laughs> just standing in a nonchalant kind of way yeah. oh <laughs> yeah. I like it I like that it's a very good piece about musettes um, because they are such an anachronism aren't they that you just think is there really no better idea than this kind of you know little stringy fabric thing with and bicycle wheels and long stringy what do you call them kind of strappy things that they just seem such a, a marriage made in hell and you wonder why riders don't come down more often well we'll talk about that in a minute um first of all though have you uh, ned have you got oh a, yeah sorry i'm jumping uh, the no, gun aren't i no. um <clears throat> pictures yeah oscar Ferrer in the volkswagen beetle i'll leave it at that and i'm sure ian can explain why oscar Ferrer is in a volkswagen beetle but um tim Cohn of the uh, what's his big book of portraits called the peloton the peloton fame all those fantastic portraits of riders having just finished a race famous one of cancellara of course um include including a famous portrait of oscar Ferrer that sets this whole piece up but he's got some lovely very tim Cohn black and white photographs and there's a particular one of um of Freire's, uh, eyes reflected in the uh, in the uh, mirror of this Volkswagen Beetle and a hand just shading the sunlight that's coming through the windscreen and it's uh, it's beautiful and uh, it's, I mean great article that goes with it as well because uh, Freire is a fascinating guy and one of those every time you watched him race it was a pleasure wasn't it because unlike Peter Sagan where it just explodes with naivety and exuberance Freire just he was just one of those intuitively brilliant riders who you know got everything out of his physical capabilities he possibly could have done over the years. If someone hasn't read the article yet, why is Oscar Freire in a beetle? He's in a beetle that actually belongs to uh, the writer of the piece, Pedro Orio, a former teammate of um, Freire's, who um, actually retired following a horrendous crash going off the side of a mountain. A terrific writer and, and a good friend of, of Freire's. And they have this, <laughs> they have this old beetle and uh, when I say rally, they don't they don't hammer the the thing, you know, for hundreds of miles. It's a regularity rally, so it's about getting there in a set time, you know, on a set route. 
But I love the way Pedro ties in little anecdotes from, mm. you know, he'll talk about them getting lost and going round a roundabout twice, and he'll saying, oh, that's the, that's the thing with Oscar is he, you know, and he, he cites two of his wins where by by cutting, going around a roundabout a different way to everyone else, he managed to win the race. You know, <laughs> he's a he's a smart a smart rider, Mr. Freer. Um, and yeah, one of the greats, I think. So it's a nice, it's a, it's a very different angle, and nicely done, I thought. Yeah. Yeah, and he talks about him kind of drifting, zoning out during races, and drifting through races at certain points, and then being super concentrated at other points. And, yeah. And um, yeah, he's a player. He's a player. I remember when when I first started c- commentating, and the first race we we did um, with I did with David Miller, featured a Thomas Vuckler, um contested stage win on the Tour de Yorkshire who's away with a group of three or four others and you know you and I and the rest of us who kind of watch Buckler know that he's a smart rider but to hear Miller elucidate quite how smart and in infinite detail Mm. step by step pedal turn by pedal turn what he was doing that was so clever I was thinking of that when I was reading about Freire there because I think they weren't dissimilar in that respect. You know? Yeah. Because yeah. what is he? What is Verkler really uh, apart from a super talent, but not one of the greats? But he's just squeezed everything out of you know his career that he possibly could have done, and the same is true of Freire, I think. Were there any other articles as you were reading through uh, Ned that really stood out for you? Mm. I, well, I've, I've really mentioned it. I've got a soft spot for the Tour of Britain. Always have done. And Ian, you spent a lot of time with. Um, anyone who's been on any domestic race will know the, the bald-headed dome of Mr. Andy Hawes, who's the race, <coughs> the race, what, the race uh, person, co- d- designer, d- d- course, roots, 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 roots master. Uh, let's call him Root Master. Let's call him the Root Master. The yeah, not, yeah. Mick Bennett is the race director, yes. his gig, but Andy Hawes actually, you know, works out that it's going to start at A, go to B, and go over that road and down that road, and so he actually works out what the race is. A region will have paid to host the race. They're going to want to show off their best bits. Yeah. Um, so the the stage that I went on with with Andy was between Stoke and Nottingham. You know, not two terribly attractive towns, it must be said. But mm. you know, every single town you went through throughout the whole route was just glorious. I mean, it is a you know a, a tour of the Peak District, and they, it's quite intentionally so. But you've also got to make it a good race as yeah, well. Yeah, yeah, of yeah. Of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's actually such a difficult job. I, I, every time I see a bike race, I, and you've got to make sure that the police forces are all engaged. Every single county has a different attitude, and some are really restrictive and really difficult. I've been, if uh, I can be loud, I've been lobbying uh, Mick Bennett, who I know quite well, having worked with him down the years for, for, for the last couple of years, to bring the penultimate stage of the Tour of Britain to finish here at Hernhill Velodrome, a la Paris-Roubaix. Mm. The, the primary reason why they're kind of shying away from this at the moment is that Burbage Road has speed bumps on it, which would be a problem. They're quite shallow speed bumps, yeah. actually. But but there is a way around that. You can remove them. <laughs> I mean, you can yeah. dig them out and done. reinstate them. And it, it does get done on, on, on races. But expensive, obviously, so the council would have to fork up for that. And equally, um, you'd have to make sure, just because of the turning into the velodrome and, and the, the race is thinned out to the point of, you know, you'd have to get a group of three or four max coming in there. <laughs> Otherwise, it's not going to work. So you'd have to make the race sufficiently hard and you'd have to bring it over, you know, several climbs of, through Crystal Palace, I would imagine, um, just to thin it out um, and make sure that's raced hard. It would so be brilliant, but it, it but does w- sound horrendously complex. Not, they haven't ruled it out. I think they really like the idea because Mick Bennett, obviously, yeah. having been a track, you know, bronze medalist in the Olympic Games in Munich in his own right, he spent a lot of his racing career down here and winning. Um, so I think for nostalgic purposes, and yeah, absolutely, can you imagine we're just sitting here and what it would look like 
on the day to bring a well, race of the statue. So many races used to finish on velodromes, didn't they, back in the day? I think every race should finish in a velodrome. I just think, if, well, if anyone... It should be the law. You know, <laughs> the it should be the law. I mean, I just it's a wonderful way to have a, a lap... You know, around it would just be great. But um, let's let's uh, you know, let's a Twitter hashtag. Let's yeah, let's, let's put a bit let's, of pressure let's on. Let's here keep the pressure on this, that. Get this on. Yeah. If anyone's wondering what the whistling is in the background, it seems to stop now. Um, there is a group of uh, young um, riders, sort of uh, in their early teens, going around and being taught how to uh, change off the front at speed. In some a group. of them look terrifyingly good as well. Don't yeah, they? some of them do look well. You know, Bradley Wiggins started down here. We've got a couple of members of the um, current. British development squad who started down here. It's a place that does breed champions and there may be one out there at the moment just learning how you get to the front of a group and, and pulling off. Should we do the competition now before we talk oh, about Oh yes Musette? indeed. Um, Last time uh, <laughs> the competition was to predict who would win on the Champs-Élysées. Yeah you wouldn't believe how many people <laughs> went for Mark Cavendish. Yeah. N- none? Some? Lots? N- nearly all? Did Were they watching the Tour de France? <laughs> I think I think they're British. Just just like you know, right. people like that should not bet. That's all I can no. say. Um, Andre Greipel, uh, Mister Matthew Marquez in Australia. Wow! Uh, and he gets uh, one of um, Richard Mitchelson's uh, Z prints. Z prints from, from the issue sixteen cover, which is a, a, a lovely prize. Um, now for this issue. We have um, a Campagnolo Sea Record T-shirt. You'd like that, wouldn't I'd you? Love that. Yeah, I'd, I'd, I'd I'd, love I'd, that. I'd, Can I enter? No. Uh, no. Um, which shows the you know, the iconic yeah. Campag. I do have one of those Campagnolo Spoken Here T-shirts. You know, the old shop. Uh, yeah, Sorry, yeah, can I just yeah. say I've no idea what you're talking about. What? What's the prize? It's a T-shirt with a Campag Sea Record on it. Didn't say T-shirt. I did. Okay, all right. It's got a picture of rear Mac. Campagnolo C record, a classic of its kind. Rear Mac. Yeah. You're showing yourself up here. Well, who's showing who up? (laughs) Gone. So it's a t-shirt with a bit of a bike component on it. Yeah. (sighs) Sounds great. Do you want to know what the question is? Yes, I'd love to. Yeah, I would, because I'm going to enter under an assumed name. (laughs) Um, Sean Kelly won the last of his green jerseys in 1989. What colour was the other jersey he won that year? He won more than one classification. Good question. Very good question. And bonification. Uh, of course, Kelly won the uh, Vuelta, and that's where you're off to next, or at least that's where you're covering next. Yeah. Next. If I'm perfectly honest, I'm not off there. <laughs> <laughs> it's going to be very much by remote control <laughs> from London. But I, I, David Miller and I are commentating on the race, so uh, at the moment I'm immersed in trying to figure out 198 rider biographies without actually knowing who's going to ride, which is tricky. Any early sort of predictions or any thoughts of... No, I mean, um, there is uh, a team time trial, uh, there is an individual time trial, um, and there are, I think, five mountain... I haven't actually looked at the course in great detail yet, but I think it's five summit finishes at least, and then lots of punchy little ones. So, uh, And, uh, you know, as, as per normal with the Vuelta, the mountains come pretty early on as well. Um, there's an extraordinary offering from both Movistar and Astana in the pipeline. So Astana, in particular, come to the party with... Um, Fabio Aru and Mikel Landa second and third in the Giro and won Vincenzo Nibali fourth in the Tour de France so that's their team wow. <laughs> Movistar are turning up with Valverde and Quintana and um, Tinkoff Saxo don't have uh, what's his name Contador but they do have Rafa Maika who uh, will notionally at least this, this far out lead the team um, then that's before we've even got to Chris Froome uh, who said he's going to ride and he's only going to be interested in trying to win it 
looking forward to it. So let's talk about Musette then. Now, of all the things in professional cycling that uh, probably needed a rethink or a redesign, you might think, I'm not sure the Musette was top of the list. Um, it's they're simple <laughs> cotton, simple cotton bags that have been used for generations. What's wrong with them? Why have you redesigned them for they're the rubbish, 21st aren't century? They? Well, Come on, they're they seem but, to do the job. That, that was the, 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 the whole reason I wanted to do this is because everything in cycling has changed immeasurably, immeasurably, especially in the last 30 years. Nothing has not been sort of radically rethought and you know from the ground up. Um, Except and yet, and yet, there's, there's this little cotton bag that causes no end of accidents and is utter mayhem. Nobody's even attempted to have a go at it, so I thought, why not? So, what did you do? You didn't have a go at designing it yourself? No, um, <laughs> I can't even draw. Can I just ask a question about the traditional musette? Yes. Why is the strappy bit so long? Because I mean, we've all—I'm sure we've all picked up or nicked or been given musettes at one point in our life, and thought, "Be quite handy to take that down the shops on my bike." And actually, it just sort of bangs around your ass or flops down the front and gets caught and caught on bangs against the frame. Why do they hang so far down? Why? Well, you, you, what's you, the thinking there? If you see the photos of the uh, MTN Quebec one in there, it's like they—they—they they, they put a knot in each one so to to make the, the strap short enough. So I don't know why they don't just make them that short <laughs> in the first place. But they, it, seems like, it seems like that's been decided. That that's, this is the length I've of always the assumed that Because if it's that length, it sort of rests against your back pockets and doesn't swing about too much. But maybe I'm wrong. Well, bear in mind, you, you know... The, it just seems a lot more swingy. So that, I don't know. But the pro riders are literally... It's over the head, swing it round. Get your stuff they, out. You don't want it... Um, you don't want it up round your neck. You imagine like level 42's Mark King playing the bass, yeah? You do not want it up there. No. Okay? You want it slung low like Jean-Jacques <laughs> Bonnell. Or um, I can't think of another low slung bassist at the moment. Ask uh, your parents, you younger know, listeners. Paul Simonon. That's where you want it. <laughs> Clash, not level 42. No. Okay. No, every time. Yeah. Quick unload, bosh, throw it away. Yeah, that's true. Um, that's true. But, you know, there's, apart from the, the, the swinging, um, the swinging musette thing which happens in an inordinate amount of times so the, the moment they make contact with it the bag just goes into a terminal spin and then they have to unspin it before they can get it over their shoulder yeah. so there's that there's the, the fact that they throw them away they don't even get to the side of the road um, so I've thrown basically this idea you know with, and all, what all the problems are with a musette over to a couple of designers and they come up with an absolutely radical reworking of it and you've got one here indeed it's circular. There's a start. It's got an aerobi. For those of you who don't know what aerobi is, because I confess I didn't. It's it's it's, a, it's kind of your modern frisbee. You it's know, a frisbee you, without a middle. Exactly. It's not, your, not your old frisbee. Not a great big bod of plastic. When you say modern, it's a little been around ring. since the early eighties. Like the eighties. Yeah, 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 I know, yeah. but that's modern, modern for me. Yeah, yeah. Modern for you know. It's I just the made sort of a re- thing you throw on the beach. Isn't I it? just made a reference to Jean-Jacques Bernard and Paul Simonon <laughs> for Pete's sake. You know, that's where I'm coming from. <laughs> The um, modern frisbee is known as the aerobic. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to try it now. Ooh. Um, so that that actually kind of... <laughs> you're struggling with this, aren't you? 
<laughs> it looks like really... you've designed a bag for an aerobi. Yeah. That's the best way of describing yeah. it. You've got an aerobi yeah. and you've got a, they've got a bespoke semicircular little pouchette mm. for your aerobi to take it down to the aerobi park to play a great fun game for all the family in your local park. Now, you're not taking this all together seriously. Well, no, I, but I, it I, only you know. covers about three quarters of it, doesn't it? You yeah. see, I'm, uh, anyone listening to your excellent description will have no idea what it looks like. No, I do. It's, I might put a picture up on, yeah. the, on the website. Yeah. It's, 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 it's a ring yeah. with about a sort of three-quarter cover. If you imagine, it looks a bit like one of those um, covers you get for, um, for racing wheels, doesn't it? The, yes. Yeah. yeah, wheel yes. covers, yeah. Um, it doesn't go all the way around. What's there is the definitely point, a What's the point in the aerobie again? I've, that's the yeah. bit that I can't quite... That's a throwy thing, then, is it? That's to make it throwable. That, that was just bonus, really. But it, it, the idea was to have a handle. So that that, that would be the, the, your, your uh, non-rigid handle, your normal sort of... Strappy bit. Strappy handle would be tucked inside. Yeah. And as the rider comes past, they grab... The, the top of the aerobie, okay. like that. Yeah. Nice and then it's dangling bosh. on their hand while they're riding along at speed. One-handed. They've got it. Like that. Pull out bosh. the strappy bit. So, Round so the front. So basically you've created Unload two movements stuff. as opposed to one. So they've got to grab They've got to grab it in their hand and then not... transfer it onto their shoulder. Look, nobody said it's perfect, which is a work Did anyone program. say it was any good? Um, you've actually tried this out for yeah, real, haven't right. you? Yeah, with the, with the t- Cannondale Garmin team. Yeah. No, they didn't totally dismiss it. Did they mostly dismiss it? <laughs> <laughs> so do you, do you stuff your food in there, in, as per normal? Yeah, in there, like, yeah. Is there room? There's not well, a huge amount of room that's in an, there. That's another thing that needs... <laughs> needs. <laughs> There's no room for any food. It's full of aerobies. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's a tight squeeze. It, it, it needs well, working on. It needs working on. But it's... Extra it's, thin sliced thing ham is, in there. That's somebody's, somebody's had a go at it. And... Uh, uh, and when like they've it. got their food out of it, they un they take the strap off and they literally and you throw it, it and it's going to go <laughs> out of the decapitating. Who was who was the sky rider who did that thing where he chucked his wheel in the air in frustration? It went off about fifty yards across the field. You must have seen that. Oh, yeah, yeah, so yeah, yeah. It'd be a similar similar thing yeah. to that. It's going to catch on the wind yeah. and it's going to shoot off across the fields and It'll then probably the, um, come back. It's, it's well, not that, like a boomerang. Ah, <laughs> yes. That's the thing. If the wind is coming from that side of the it road, will come back and take. There the, is the uh, danger it will come back and decapitate somebody. So again. <laughs> it's a work in progress. Yeah, I think generally you're right though. Someone's got to come up. Someone's got to nail this because it's, it's time to way. move on. There's got to be, or oh, well, you know, or reorganise the whole feed zone in some way. It'd be much less fun, wouldn't it? A, a lot of the riders do say actually they don't bother with the feed zone because all they do is wait, um, you know, a, a, another couple of miles, then drop back to the car the and team get, car. Yeah, and get, get their yeah. food and drink from the team car. Yeah. Well, that's what Joe Dom, Dombrowski, Dombrowski we've decided Joe was Dombrowski. Yeah, Joe. Um, that's what that's what he does. He says, you know what? I just don't. I don't bother. I I can't be done with the the hassle, and I'd rather go back to the car. I remember uh, Rob Hales telling me when he was working on the Secret Squirrel Aerodynamic Wind Tunnel Club at British Cycling that uh, they figured out that if you if you attach to the front of a helmet on a kind of dangly pole thing, something like a tennis ball, uh, sorry, table tennis, uh, yeah, ping pong ball, like that. Carrot. Yeah, at about sort of two foot in front of the helmet. Uh, that would break the airflow and give you an aerodynamic advantage, like a dangler, like one of those angler fishes, like that. But again, you know, how, what price do you want to pay for a little bit of aerodynamic advantage when everyone's going to laugh at you and it just kind of, it went away, it went away. So maybe back to the drawing board with the aerodynamic tennis ball. Dangler. Hat. I'm going to use uh, one next week here. 
And good <laughs> luck with that. Excellent. I know where it's going to get you. And good luck with the uh, redesign of the museum. We look forward to some uh, some more innovative ideas. Perhaps yeah. is, is there another eighties beach toy that you haven't exploited? <laughs> um, space opera. <laughs> the space. Oh. Mm. <laughs> Yeah. I shouldn't have said that, should oh. I? Okay, that is it from this <laughs> podcast uh, for Issue 57. I'm Ian Parkinson. Thank you for listening. Thanks to Ian Cleverly. Uh, thanks to Ned Bolting. Pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. And uh, see you next time. Bye-bye. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.